0: Welcome to AUSA's Army Matters Podcast, focusing on what's important to the total Army community. We bring vital Army conversations and interviews on issues relevant to soldiers, military families, and all of you amazing Army supporters. Rotating each week, our show includes Soldier Today, Army Real Talk, Family Voices, and Thought Leaders. Let's tune into the show.
1: Welcome to AUSA's Army Matters Podcast. This is Thought Leaders with Joe Craig. My guest today is Robert K. Sutton, the author of Nazis on the Potomac, the top secret intelligence operation that helped win World War II. Robert K. Sutton recently retired as chief historian of the National Park Service, which culminated a 33-year career. He's published a number of books, articles, and reviews on various public history topics, and I had the pleasure of working with him on his previous book, Stark Mad Abolitionists. So Bob, uh, welcome to the
2: podcast. Thank you. Thank you.
1: Well, you know, your new book tells the story of secret operations at Fort Hunt, a small location just down the river from Washington, D.C. I suspect that most people then and now would be really surprised to learn that thousands of high-level German prisoners were there during World War II. Would you give our listeners just a, a quick intro to what was going on there?
2: Sure, sure. would be happy to. Well, Fort Hunt had been a coastal artillery port built around the turn of the century, around 1900, on land that actually had been part of George Washington's plantation. It was the river plantation, George Washington's plantation system. So it had an interesting history even before World War II. But during World War II, it became an important site in intelligence gathering because there were three programs that were functioning at Port Hunt. They all had, of course, they were military, so they had to have acronyms. So one was M-I-S-X, and that was a program that was important for escape and evasion. So in other words, if pilot was shot down, there was packages that were put together that would help them, hopefully, evade being captured. There were also packages that were sent to those who were captured and in POW camps. They would send things like transmitters and cribbage boards or baseballs, and they would inform the prisoners that something was coming from a bogus organization by a secret a coded letter system and it worked exceedingly well. So that was one program. Another program was MISY, which was probably the principal program that I talked about in the book at Fort Hunt. And this had two components to it. One was interrogating, actually interrogating primarily German prisoners late in the war and after the war, Japanese prisoners as well, but there were some others that were captured by the Germans that came there too. So the interrogation was a significant part of MISY. And the other part of this program was an eavesdropping program. There was the prison camp era part of Fort Hunt had microphones all over the fort that were hidden that would capture conversations primarily in rooms where the prisoners were staying, but around the fort as well. So the eavesdropping was another important part of MISY. And then there was a third function, documents gathering and interpreting and then writing reports on called MIRS. And this was about 20 men were involved in this program. There were literally tons of German documents that came through Fort Hunt. One person who was in the MIRS system, Paul Fairbrook, said that in his opinion, he thought every time a German sneezed, it was documented. So the Germans were very fastidious in their document keeping, which was good for them, but it turned out to be an absolute goldmine for the Allies by capturing and analyzing and interpreting the documents that were captured. So those were the three major programs that were functioning at Fort Hunt.
1: Yeah, and you know these activities were a very closely held secret for decades after the war. So I was wondering, when was this information declassified, and how did you get connected to
2: the story? The men who were stationed there were sworn to secrecy, and they took it very seriously. They understood that they were likely to take this story to the grave with them, and of course, most of them did. But Fort Hunt Park, which is part of the National Park Service, commissioned a study of the history of the park, And the fellow who did this study was able to get into the National Archives and actually look at some of the interrogations that were done, found out a lot more about the program. And this was about around 2000. So by about 2000, the Park Service was beginning to learn more about it. But the one thing that they really, really wanted that was really critical to them was to be able to talk to some of the soldiers who were stationed at Fort Hunt. The Park Service was able to interview about 65 primarily soldiers who were stationed at Fort Hunt, and that became an absolute goldmine of material. In fact, most of the book is actually based on those interviews, and I found out about it. Um, I was appointed as chief historian of the Park Service, and I started in October of 2007, right in the middle of this project, and I met with the fellows who were doing the oral histories, and I was able to give them a little bit of money to continue the oral histories where they had to travel.
1: So who were these soldiers working at
2: Fort Hunt? How were they selected for the job? This is, I think, the most fascinating part of the story. Many of them were German and Austrian Jews who had come to the United States, in many cases as children, in the 1930s when Hitler came to power. Some came with their families, some came alone um, through a program that was established for bringing 1,000 German Jewish children to the United States. So they had a very interesting reason for being there. First of all, they were fluent in German. they understood German culture, and of course they had an axe to grind with Hitler who had forced them out of their homeland. One of the men who was stationed at Fort Hunt, Paul Fairbrook, made an interesting comment It sort of followed up from another gentleman, Hans Speer, who's there as well, who said that you can train a soldier to shoot a gun, throw hand grenades and whatever in six weeks or six months. But no matter whether it's six weeks, six months or six years, you can never, ever train anybody to speak German like a native. And so that probably was one of the most valuable parts of this program. That they understood the culture, they had a very good reason to be there to defeat Hitler
1: when these interrogators were you know going through their training for how to do intelligence, they were told you know repeatedly emphasized the importance of establishing a connection with the prisoner. So what techniques do they use? How do they elicit information from the prisoners?
2: Well, one thing that they made very, very clear, and I emphasize at several points in the book. In fact, at back to one point, I sort of apologized for saying it over and over again. They wanted to make it very clear that they never, ever used corporal punishment on any of the Germans. As far as I can tell from all of my research that followed, they just did not beat or torture any of the prisoners. But they had other ways of getting information, so they would try to do the friendly approach, like... You wanna play ping pong? You wanna play horseshoes? Would you like to go to a movie? You know, if you tell us some really good information, we'll take you to a really, really nice steak dinner in DC. So that was one approach. And usually when they started the interrogation, they said, would you like a cigarette? You know, would you like something to eat? So they tried the friendly approach. And in most cases that worked, but if it didn't work, they had several other ways of getting information, short of torture. One was the gun emplacements from the fort. That was built in about 1900 were still there and the underground bunkers under the gun emplacements had steel doors and in some cases they would take prisoners down lock them in the underground bunkers for a day they said they never put them there overnight so they put them there and take them out and okay do you want to talk now well maybe they did maybe they didn't but the one thing that worked exceedingly well for getting these german soldiers to talk was they had two men, two Russian-American soldiers who were at Fort Hunt. One's name was Alexander Shidlinsky. The other was Alex Dallin. They were dressed up in Russian uniforms, in the Red Army uniforms. And, of course, they spoke fluent Russian. And so if an interrogation was not going well, they would say, oh, you don't want to talk to us? How about if we have Ivan here take you to the Soviet Union? Maybe they would like to hear what you have to say. The Germans were so terrified of the Russians that in many, many cases, in fact, there's an estimate that I think is pretty reliable, that about 80% of the soldiers who were reluctant to say anything, all of a sudden would start talking with the threat of being sent to the Soviet Union. And so that was a very, very effective means of gaining information.
1: And then as these uh, interrogators are gathering pieces of information... You mentioned in the book, you know, a lot of times it's akin to assembling pieces of a jigsaw puzzle. So they don't always know how effective it's being. But there are some practical examples that you talk about where, for example, the program helped determine bombing targets. Can you just uh, share one of those examples with our listeners?
2: Sure. Um, well, one thing that they noticed, the Allies would bomb railroad terminals. So, you know, there'd be a railroad yard. They would bomb it. They thought that they had completely destroyed the railroad terminals, stations, and so forth. But the next day, the trains were running as if nothing had happened. And what they discovered was that the Germans were beginning to load and unload the railroad cars at crossings. There are hundreds and thousands of railroad crossings all throughout Germany. So they'd pick a particular one. The train would come there. They'd bring whatever needed to be put on the train to the crossing load the trains there, and that was the method that they were using. That's why the bombings seemed to have no effect. Well, with that information, they started to look for areas where trucks seemed to be congregating at crossings, and they would begin to target the crossings instead and had a lot more success.
1: We're going to talk about the next topic in just a moment.
0: Did you know, as a member of AUSA, you have access to many benefits? From car rental to entertainment discounts, the opportunities are ample. Visit www.ausa.org benefits to learn more.
1: One surprising thing that uh, I learned in the book was the importance of brothel cards. Would you explain how the intel teams were using personal documents from the captured soldiers and sailors?
2: Yes, well, <laughs> there are two things. One was they had what was, I can't remember the German term, but the translation was a passbook. So it would be somewhat like a passport. It would have a tremendous amount of information. So if a soldier got an award, it would say where he got the award, from whom, it would say what German division he was in. It would have a a huge amount of information. And so these passbooks became very, very valuable. And... What the folks at Fort Hunt began to tell the soldiers in the field who were capturing documents, they said, look, if you can get these passbooks, that would be very, very helpful. Another thing that they discovered that prisoners who came to Fort Hunt, or actually any place where they were in Europe or at Fort Hunt, they had a card that they were required to carry. This card was for official German houses of prostitution the Germans actually kept official brothels, and soldiers were required to keep cards on the brothels that they had visited, where and with whom they had done their their deed with. And the purpose, of course, for the Germans was, well, if all of a sudden soldiers started showing up with a venereal disease, they would look where they had been, who they had been with, and so forth. The main value of this was let's say you're interrogating a sailor who had a card with him and the interrogator said oh what did you think of maria at brothel 34j he would look at them like how on earth do you know that would knock them so off guard that in many cases they said well they know everything anyway so i might as well tell them what they want to know so that was one feature another thing was some of these soldiers felt very guilty maybe they were married they sure didn't want their wife to know that they'd gone to a brothel, or maybe they were very religious and they had a moment when they said, well, who cares, didn't want it known that they had been to a brothel. So these two sources turned out to be very, very valuable. Yeah, and I'm sure that you know
1: they helped track movements of various units, which kind of leads us into the discussion of documents that NIRS, the Military Intelligence Research Service, was involved with. Please you know, talk about that work and importance of what they put together called
2: the, the Red Book. The Red Book, I think, was one of the most valuable things that came out of Fort Hunt. There were several different editions of this. It was called The Order of Battle of the German Army. It described every function within the German Army in great detail. They essentially knew every single division who the commander was, who the second command was, where the division was located, what the division had done. There was infantry, artillery, so forth. It also went into a great deal of detail on special things like the SS or the Waffen-SS. I mean, it described the SS, the Gestapo, in extreme detail so that the soldiers in the field had a very, very good sense of what they were gonna be up against. And the other thing that was very helpful was if you're interrogating somebody, you would say, oh, well, I see that your division was here and it was there. Your commander was so-and-so. The chief of staff is so-and-so. Oh, I see that you uh, were in Russia. Now you're here. So again, it had a great value for interrogating because (laughs) like the passbook and like the prostitute card, if you could tell a soldier as much as you knew, and he realized that you knew a great deal about what he did, it had a tremendous value for gaining information.
1: Now, you had alluded to it earlier in the discussion, you know, the programs like MISX, x super programs that go beyond intelligence gathering analysis. Tell us a little bit about MISX, x uh, the program set up by Silvio Gdini, who you call the first cryptographer of the U.S. Army. How did his code work?
2: Well, what he would do, to me, this is very funny. Let me just say a little bit about our oral history projects. Silvio Benini worked in the Smithsonian. He became very high up in the what is now the American History Museum. But during World War II, he set up the cryptography program to communicate between Fort Hunt and prisoners of war, primarily in the Luft, L-U-F-T, Luft Prisoner of War Camps. These were primarily for airmen who were shot down. And so that was the primary connection, not the only, but the primary connection. So what he did was he looked at the British system for communicating. He copied what he could. The British system had a lot of mathematical formulas in it. And he said that he had never passed a math exam in his entire life. He flunked every single one of them. So the math part wasn't going to work, but the rest of it could work. So what he would do is they would encrypt messages in letters. He thought the most important thing for writing letters was to have soldiers who were lousy at writing. In other words, not very educated. He didn't want to have PhD scientists writing letters with multiple syllable words. He wanted to have people who were not very good, really, at writing letters because he thought if it sounded like someone really, really intelligent was writing a letter, the Germans might be suspicious of who was writing the letter. And he said that, you know, you can't train somebody to write terribly, but you can train somebody to write better. So that was part of it. They set up a system so that there were several hundred airmen who were trained in this system, who in turn would train airmen who were going to Europe in how the system worked. So in every prisoner of war camp, there would be one or two or more prisoners who knew how this system worked, who could communicate with Fort Hunt. And it was, it's funny. There's one soldier that we interviewed said that he got letters from a woman named Emma who was in his high school. Well, he didn't know anybody by that name. He certainly didn't know this particular person, but what he was amazed at is how much she knew about whoever it was, how much she knew about his high school. And so it worked very, very well. It was one of the, I think, one of the really great successes in World War II. And the secret operations at Fort
1: Hunt, they didn't end with the Germany surrender. So to wrap up our discussion, could you uh, tell us about some of the military intelligence work that was done there after the war?
2: Most of the soldiers that we interviewed were there late in the war. It just was, unfortunately, they were the ones who were still alive when we started our program. And so they're the ones that we were able to interview. And so many of them were there after the war. The arrangement for Fort Hunt with the Park Service, the Park Service actually owned the fort before World War II. And so the Department of War had to make an arrangement with the Park Service to use Fort Hunt. And the arrangement was that they could keep it for a year after the war was over. And so after the war, the interrogations were very, very different. One thing a lot more German generals came through the fort some had tremendously important information and the ones that really were the most desirable were the ones who knew a lot about Russia because late in the war many of the German soldiers said look I want to be on your side when the war's over because we think there's going to be a war not long after this war's over with Russia and so The whole emphasis shifted from interrogating soldiers for winning World War II to learning as much as possible about the Soviet Union and about the Russians. Very good hint of many secrets to come. I
1: want to thank Robert K. Sutton for being our guest today. His new book is Nazis on the Potomac, the top secret intelligence operation that helped win World War II.
0: To all our listeners, thanks for joining us. Be sure to subscribe to the Army Matters Podcast on iTunes and everywhere podcasts are found. The Army Matters Podcast series is brought to you by the Association of the United States Army, the U.S. Army's Professional Association, member-supported, Army-connected. Visit us at AUSA.org for more information or to become a member. Your membership helps AUSA continue to carry out its mission to educate, inform, and connect with the total Army our industry partners, and our supporters of a strong national defense. For questions or to provide topic recommendations, email us at podcast at Have a great Army Day. Hua.